Hi, folks. <laughs> uh, so today we're continuing our series on the names of God, uh, and I have the exciting challenge of preaching on the topic of the Holy Spirit being our empowerer. Now, this is my first sermon in front of an audience this tall, uh, so I'd appreciate it if you go a little easy on me. Uh, before jumping in to the meat of this, I'd like to share with you a story. When I was about 15, I thought it would be a clever idea to sign up for the Duke of Edinburgh Gold Award. Now, as part of this award, you go away on an expedition, uh, a hiking trip or something similar to test your team building skills and physical fitness. Having never hiked before in my entire life up to this point, I thought, how hard could this possibly be? <laughs> as it turned out, it could be pretty hard. Uh, fast forward to the expedition, uh, we're somewhere in the Lake District, hiking up some hillside in the rain, I think near Coniston, uh, my face as purple as Barney the Dinosaur. Uh, for context, at the age of 15, I was about three inches shorter and about two stone heavier, so hiking really was not something I was in any way equipped for. Uh, as I managed to huff and puff my way up to the top of this ridge, uh, my eyes and my friends who were hiking with me's eyes fell upon a really curious sight. Along the ridge, there was a river, and in the riverbed, there was a grand piano. It was busted beyond belief. Keys were floating down. There were branches and twigs stuck in the piano. It was like smashed to pieces and was just lying there in this riverbed. Seeing this piano, we were all just so confused. It was so out of place, so damaged, and just such a surreal sight I remember us all just taking a moment to like check ourselves and make sure we weren't like dehydrated or like suffering from exposure and imagining the fact that there was a piano in the river. Now, as I look back on this very odd memory, I can't help but ask two questions. One, how did the piano end up where it was? And because I'm curious about how things work and the mechanics of stuff, would it be possible in any way to fix the piano? Now, personally, uh, I do not play the piano, nor have I ever attempted to repair one, but based upon that lack of experience and only a very small amount of research, I think it would require about five steps if someone wanted to restore that piano found in a riverbed. Firstly, they'd have to remove it from the riverbed. Secondly, you'd have to repair the physical damage uh, replacing the broken parts, cleaning out all the silt, potentially replacing large sections of the woodwork that might be flooded through and then would like collapse whilst playing, which would be quite embarrassing. Thirdly, you'd have to restring it and retune everything. I'm looking to Simon for like commentary, good. Uh, <laughs> making sure it'd be functionally usable again. Fourthly, you'd have to begin to play it, retuning it slightly here and there as you go, making sure it actually can do the thing it was designed to do. And finally, after all that, a quick coat of lacquer and some, you know, everyday maintenance as you go, and there you'd have it. You'd have yourself a good-as-new piano rescued from a riverbed. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if you were sat there thinking, well, John, that was a somewhat interesting anecdote about a riverbed piano, uh, and your repair methodology might actually be okay. It might actually work. But how is that in any way related to the Holy Spirit being our empowerer? Well, in my view, as I've been reflecting on this odd little memory of mine and thinking about how one would go about fixing a river-dwelling piano, I've been struck by how similar the pattern is between the method by which I would attempt to fix this piano 
and the strategy that the Holy Spirit uses as he rescues and empowers people to live out their faith in a practical way. You see, the first thing the Holy Spirit has done in any of our lives is convict us of our sin. In Ephesians 2, read very kindly by Jim, Paul pulls no punches when he lays out the position that every person finds themselves in before they come to know Jesus. He reminds the Ephesians, and therefore us as well, that before we knew Jesus, we were dead in our sin. We would just do whatever we desired to do without stopping to consider whether it would honor God or not. We lived to please ourselves, make ourselves feel comfortable, and to indulge in the things our consciences would tell us not to without a second thought. And as such, we were deserving of God's wrath. Fortunately for us, God is rich in mercy. And so, at the very beginning of each of our Christian walks, the Spirit comes alongside us. He opens our eyes right there at the beginning so that we can see the situation we have gotten ourselves into for what it really was. The riverbed we put ourselves in. Did anyone else have one of those moments when, like, out of nowhere, you just, like, took stock of your own life and thought, how on earth did I end up here? And realized that something had to change, that something had to give? The good news is that the Spirit meets us right there in the riverbed. He doesn't wait for us to try and pull ourselves out of the silt and mud. I think we all know that pianos can't do that. He meets us there. He rescues us from the mud and gives us a new heart, empowering us to resist temptation as we repent and believe the good news about Jesus. The Spirit, from this point onwards, continues then to convict us, prodding our consciences when we sin, drawing us back into God's fold over and over again. Having opened our eyes so that we might see our own sin and drawing us to Jesus so that we might repent and acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit does not then leave us to figure out how to follow Jesus on our own. He begins the lifelong process of sanctification in us and accompanies us on this adventure we're invited onto as both our guide and comforter. Now, sanctification is a pretty big word uh, with it or a synonym of it showing up all throughout the Old and New Testaments. We're told in Exodus 19 that God sanctified a mountain, Mount Sinai. We're told in 2 Chronicles that Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was sanctified by God for his uses. Uh, We're told that the goblets taken from the temple and used by Belshazzar in his pagan feast in Daniel 5 were sanctified by God. And also we're told that we as Christians are sanctified and in the process of being sanctified. Now I'm aware I might have said the word sanctified so much that the word has probably lost all meaning and is just coming into our brains as like gibberish at this point. But I think it's an important word to figure out. Like, what does the word mean? To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be made pure by God for a specific purpose, to be made ready, to be prepared and shaped for a specific task or area of service. Just as the piano having been rescued after its poorly planned dive into a riverbed, would have to be repaired and then have its hammers realigned, new strings laid down and be retuned so that upon each keystroke the right note was sounded, so too must our hearts be retuned, shaped and purified to be in line with Christ's. The Holy Spirit continues to empower us to resist temptation. He teaches us how to seek Righteousness. He opens scripture to us so that we can understand what it means. And he shows us more and more of what Christ is like. 
so that we can become more and more like him. For us, unlike a goblet or a mountain, sanctification is not a one-stop shop. It is a lifelong process with the Holy Spirit revealing new areas in our lives that need to be retuned as we grow in spiritual maturity. Firstly, the Holy Spirit empowers us so that we might see our own sin. Secondly, he empowers us so that we might begin to live a living faith. Now, if we are being sanctified, and that means to be prepared for a specific purpose, this leads to a rather natural question, I think. Why? Why does the Holy Spirit sanctify us? For what purpose are we being made pure? Well, the answer that the scriptures provide is a simple one. We have been set apart. We are in the process of being made pure so that we might serve God and serve him well. Friends, we are not saved by Christ's redeeming work on the cross so we can sit around in comfy chairs wondering about how marvelous he is. Although sometimes that's a reasonable thing to do. We're saved to serve others and to see the kingdom realized today, here on earth in Bridge North. The New Testament makes it exceedingly clear that if we are part of the body of Christ, then we have been called and will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve others in specific ways, according to the gifts that the Spirit determines for us to have. And we are encouraged to be good stewards of these gifts, using them to bless others often. Wouldn't it be an awful shame if you had a beautiful piano that you rescued and repaired and then never actually played it? It would be another full sermon in its own right to discuss all of the different gifts that the Holy Spirit gives out generously to us. If you are curious and would like to know more about these various gifts, I'd recommend you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, uh, his letter to the Galatians, and his letter to the Ephesians, as he speaks a lot about them. For the sake of brevity, I have composed a rap listing them all. Just kidding. (laughs) That being said, uh, to make a sweeping generalization, all of these gifts help us as Christians to serve more effectively within the two contexts that we are all commanded to serve within. You see, just to fully hammer home this point, Jesus does not only call some of us to serve, he commands us all to, both within the Christian community and out in the world. Within the Christian community, we are called to use the gifts the Holy Spirit has given us to build up, encourage, challenge, and help one another to grow in spiritual maturity. We are called to speak the truth in love to one another when one of us stumbles or begins to fall away, to pray for the sick, the hurting, and those in need and to celebrate together corporately when prayers are answered, people are restored, and God is glorified. We are called to serve one another, not looking for positions of authority and power so that we can domineer each other within the church, making people like, do what we want them to do, but positions of humility when we might serve as Jesus did. Out in the world, we are commanded to, and given the boldness by the Holy Spirit to, share the good news in word and deed with all those we encounter in our everyday lives. We see this in Matthew 10, where Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about what what to say, because he says that the Spirit will give them the words to say. We see it in Acts 1, where the Spirit fills Peter with boldness as he preaches that first sermon on Pentecost. Like, I can only imagine how scared he would have been, standing up in front of thousands of people and then proclaiming the good news. 
There is not a single instance in Scripture where Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, or any of the other contributors to the New Testament say, now, as for those of you who don't feel particularly confident or unsure of what to say, you're excused from preaching the gospel. In fact, it would actually seem that the Holy Spirit tends to use those people to do so more, other, more than the others. We too then can trust that the Spirit will give us boldness and the words when we find ourselves in those same situations. The fact of the matter is, we are not given these gifts by the Holy Spirit so that we can look at them, say, hey, that's pretty cool, and then throw it away in an imaginary box within our minds and never actually use it. We are given these gifts and equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve our King, Jesus, and to be a part of seeing the kingdom come here and now. And you know what is just so amazing about the God we serve? As we step out and serve in these giftings that he has given us, the Spirit uses those moments to further shape us to be more like Christ. Now, a couple, probably about a week or two ago, Graham and I uh, were, had a meeting and had left Weatherspoons afterwards, the classic place to have a meeting. Uh, and this, this man was coming down uh, the road from St. Leonard's Church down into the main road in his car. And his car battery stopped. Now, fortunately, as the car was still kind of beginning to roll, it was quite easy for Graham and I to get behind the car and begin pushing it, and eventually the engine picked back up again and he could drive off. Friends, when it comes to having the Holy Spirit sanctify us, it's a little bit like trying to push a car that's either stopped with the handbrake down or is still moving. You see, if we actually begin to step out and, kind of in, and say, like, like, I know this is what the Spirit's calling me to do, so I'm going to step out and try it, it's far easier for the Spirit to put words in our mouths and move us and shape us as we go than it is we sit down, put the handbrake down, and say, I'm not moving. So, by way of conclusion, I'd like to end with an encouragement. The Holy Spirit is not sat around waiting for us to try and get to a point where we feel like we're sussed and sorted before inviting us to serve. In fact, his empowerment in no way relies upon you sorting yourself out first. Instead, it relies on the very opposite. He empowers us to serve as we turn to him and ask him to help us do so. To use one of those cliche phrases we hear all the time, uh, God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. Um, he wants us to step out in faith, and there we are blessed. So let's do that, shall we? We are indeed broken instruments. Let's recognize that for a moment. But I am convinced of the fact that our God is the master of both restoring broken things and creating beautiful melodies from them. Let's pray, shall we? Holy Spirit.